You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Ruthie Fearberg, and this is Why We Theater. The intersection of theater and social justice, this podcast digs into today's most thought-provoking and urgent onstage works with the artists who made them and real-world experts who advise us on how we can create impactful change in our offstage lives. After all, that is why we theater. Today we welcome Ming Pfeiffer to talk about her astounding play, Usual Girls. Marking Ming's professional debut, the play premiered in 2018 at Roundabout Underground for an extended sold-out run. The play follows Kyung, a half-white, half-Asian American girl and her white female peers and the experiences marking their sexual maturation as they grow up in a predominantly white neighborhood in Ohio. From being blackmailed for a kiss by their male peer on the elementary school playground after he throws racial slurs at Kyung, to playing boyfriends and humping their stuffed animals, from looking at each other's bodies during a middle school sleepover party, to ostracizing Kyung in high school for her, quote, bad behavior and calling her a slut, from feeling strangely turned on by that scene in Disney's Aladdin to being the target of sexual violence, Ming viscerally and emotionally tracks what it means to grow up femme in America. This episode focuses on femme sex and sexuality, and we do talk about everything from pleasure and self-discovery to misogyny, rape culture, and recovering from violence. If this is the kind of content you find difficult or triggering, I'm taking a page out of Brene Brown's book to say, I hope you'll listen with a friend or do what you need to do to take care of yourself if you choose to listen. And if you choose to listen, I hope this is healing and validating for you. And as always, there are resources in the episode description, on our website, and on social channels at Why We Theater. This is the first of a two-part episode. Well, I am just beyond excited that we have Ming Pfeiffer and an incredible panel of experts today. I saw Usual Girls off off Broadway at Roundabout Underground. I couldn't even believe I got a seat because it was completely sold out, but I did. And it ended up on my personal top nine list of theater productions that year because I only make a list of the things that I think should be on there and whatever number it is, it is. And Usual Girls was at the top. And, uh, Ming Pfeiffer, our playwright, is here today. She was nominated for a Drama Desk Award for this professional debut. Welcome, Ming. 
Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat. I'm just, I can't tell you how excited I am to sit in that theater was an experience unlike anything else I've ever had. And to feel, you know, people talk so often about feeling seen on stage. And again, it's not like I hadn't seen people that looked like me. I am lucky that I had seen that at least, but I had not seen people who had my experiences or who were showing that experience. So I want to dig in and I actually want to start with the title. Where did the title Usual Girls come from? Um, Well, I think I was just thinking about the way in which uh, girls and women are used in our um, society and Mm. and sort of thrown away, but then also the, the connotation of something that's normal as well in terms of what the experience is and also the ways in which we're marginalized. So it just felt like that word had a lot uh, uh, to go with it. And people would always say, like, mis- uh, mistake it to be unusual girls. And I was like, mm. see, that's actually interesting that you assume it must be that instead of what the title actually is. So even though it tricks some people up, I found that very interesting. Right. Wow. That is so fascinating because I remember leaving going, of course, it's called usual girls because now I know that my experience is common. I yes, had and not, not unusual. Right. I I thought it was unusual, but here I am going, oh wait, there's someone else, you know, literally the scene with the stuffed animals and the girls like figuring out what masturbation is essentially on stage going, oh my God, this now makes so much sense. Or uh, the reference to Jasmine in Aladdin and knowing that everyone had that same feeling of like, wait, why do I like that she's like tied up and Jafar is kind of goading her in this way? What's going on? So to find out that other people had that experience, you're like, ah, I'm usual success. That that (laughs) moment was so hilarious in the theater every night because I watched it for previews. So that was, you know, eight, eight shows a week. And every night there would be at least one woman in the, in the audience who would start bursting out laughing. And I was like, Yep, you and I have something in common. <laughs> yep, same. You're and you're like same generation. You know this. You know the puffy cover. We're there. Um, I want to rewind a little bit before we go too deep into individual scenes. I know that the initial idea for the play was actually a very different play. That it was inspired by um, allegations against American Apparel's Dove Charney. And that during your process, you then realized that your story about women was centered around a man. So you kind of like scrapped and revised. So, but what was it about that particular incident and that particular man? Because unfortunately, there are many men and many high profile men at that who have been accused of sexual misconduct or violent behavior. But what was it about this one that made you say, it's time to write about this? And it's time to write about specifically female sexuality in the context of this. I think at the time, he was one of the more high profile people who kind of got some sort of uh, a press around what was going on. And then also, I think just, you know, just living in New York and seeing these stores all the time, I did think theatrically, it would be interesting to have these kind of bright colors and things Mm -hmm. like that. And I also knew that um, a lot of 
the models that he used were women who worked in the stores that then he would take photographs of sleep with. And so just and to, then to have those pictures emblazoned on in the actual stores themselves of these women that he abused, I think just sort of everything about that and how visible it was in, in both what he was doing before he got in trouble and then just, yeah, mixed with this sort of all American thing, I think was interesting to me. Mm. Also my mom works in um, corporate fashion. And so I just know that world. Yeah. So that was, that was also part of it. But um, yeah, I was just, I I thought theatrically the store could look interesting on stage um, and these pictures of these women who we then see actually and who they really were. Um, but but yeah, I just I I, w- I had an interest in that and had an interest in talking about you know what what women go through. Um, and so yeah, I I had this sort of revulsion once I realized I was like, why am I writing about this guy? And uh, then yeah. sort of the girls came out of that, right? And how even if and I don't you know I don't know I didn't see that play, but even if you were villainizing him, it was still about him and not about the women is what I realized yeah yeah because the only thing that really existed in that original play was I had um a conversation with the director I was working with at the time where we interjected into scenes and so that actually ended up being what the woman was when she actually talks to us so it was just kind of that was sort of the only thing that stayed and I, I threw away everything else I just kept the conversations so um, interesting because I was yeah. going to ask you if the woman was always there because she comes in. So so for those of you who haven't seen the show, the our lead character is Kyung, a young Asian American. She begins as a girl and, you know, grows into a woman. And we have her older self kind of as a as a counterpart looking back on this full path of hers. And I was curious because she comes in so late and she is this reflective vision perspective on the story if she had been there always so it's fascinating to learn that she was actually the the one thing that was there all along yeah essentially that was just me and my director at the time we just had a conversation I just recorded it we put that in and that ended up being the only thing that stayed because I had all these scenes about this terrible man and then I was like why am I giving him a platform and so I just had I just kept that stuff and uh it, it morphed because it work differently in the new piece, but, um, but that was really the only thing that stayed. Yeah. So what, when you decided to flip that script and make it about the girls and put the girls on stage, I believe this story is very personal. Yes. And what made you go to the personal place of it? Well, at the time I was at Columbia in my MFA and I was only one of two POC in the entire uh, 10 person class. Mm -hmm. And um, I had been writing a lot of plays that I hated, but I felt like I was trying to write for them and for Mm -hmm. what what they were interested in. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time in my MFA, I was just so angry um, that I just kind of went, you know what, I'm done trying to please you and trying to uh, perform for you. And so I just went to a really, really personal place because the one thing I could hold on to was I was like, this is real. So that like, I don't care if you tell me you don't like this. I don't care if you tell me that this is like too much. 
this is my life. So I don't care what you think. (laughs) Right. So don't tell me it's not realistic and don't tell me it's too dramatic because I lived it. Exactly. (laughs) So you are half uh, Asian American and half white. Yes. And I know that the centering of that specifically mixed perspective was crucial to you. Talk to me about how how that distinguishes itself both in the play, but then also just in general from things that you had been seeing, even if we got the occasional Asian American story of like <clears throat> Asian parents or something like that. Yeah. So I actually think that the play could be performed with um, a, a full, uh, full-blooded Asian at the center because more, I think what the play is interrogating is being otherized in a very, and growing up in a white environment. Mm-hmm. And so we did end up casting a white dad, which I think in performance ends up adding something when we did it and had a half Asian character, I think perhaps something that could be read into that is that even, even a more complicated and, uh, fetishization of whiteness and needing to perform as white because you do have kind of when you're when you're mixed race um your identity is kind of you don't dictate it it's dictated by your surroundings and Mm -hmm. so I feel like you know among white people I'm Asian among Asian people I'm white and Mm -hmm. so it's just constantly um yeah, your, your, your identity is dictated by your surroundings, not by yourself. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It reminds me of the soft power episode we did with David Henry Huang, uh, listening to him talk about, I'm not two halves, I'm whole. And it's like, I'm not just this when I'm here and I'm not just that when I'm there. So, um, but seeing that story come to life here is, is obviously a fresh perspective, I mean, I know I was actually tripping up earlier when I was saying full Asian. I was like, I was trying to find like a better words for that because I was like, that's like (laughs) weird to say because like I'm just as Asian as I am white. And like, I don't know. It's just, it's so, such a mind fuck. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not really, I I mean, I'm not a person for, for labels in that way, but I do know that that, you know, that is part of your story and that's part of this story. And, I mean, what I am so interested in just also as a creator is you, you bared your soul in a way in this production, both as a woman, having gone through such misogyny, sexism, um, you know, there's violence in this play, as well as some of the racist slurs that were (laughs) thrown. Talk to me about your process emotionally writing it. How did you muster the courage to be that there. I, I, again, it went, I was so angry. So I, during the actual writing process of it, it was just spewing. It was like vomiting. Like I was just so, I just, it, it went really fast. Um, I wasn't censoring myself. There were times where I would like cry when I wrote something. And then I was like, all right, I need to like go eat something and drink some water. But, like, <laughs> um, uh, but in, other than that, but then I would just keep going. It was like, I got it out. I got the tears out. And then I would just keep kind of going. The more difficult process was watching it. Um, mm-hmm. Actually watching these things happen. What I'm going to get um, emotional. Uh, watching Midori respond to it. And like, yeah, essentially be able to see um, what happened from a different, a different vantage point. Yeah. Um, Take your time. And, 
yeah, and seeing how how she could uh, relate and also so beautifully portray the pain um, was was really intense, uh, especially because yeah, I was watching it eight eight uh, eight oh. times a week. Yep, um, and, and that's then, just yeah. in performance. That's not rehearsal. Yes, yes. Um, and then I also think, yeah, a lot of uh, all the women who were involved and the men as well, um, there were all there were always throughout the whole process, there were moments where people needed to take uh, take five. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and Midori Francis, who played your uh, your evolving Kiang, let's call her. I mean, she was phenomenal. Um, yeah. You decided to structure this kind of, it feels almost like episodic in the way that we're watching the coming of age of not just Kyung, but of all of these girls and their one male peer, Rory. What was it about the playground at five, the play date at seven, the sleepover at, you know, double digits is what I felt. I was like, this is the double digit sleepover and, and high school and college how did you choose those moments in particular? So I had actually come across an anonymous piece of writing on the internet where it was this woman just charted every kind of formational, uh, misogynistic uh, thing in her life. And it was much more lengthy. It was more like every year sort of thing. And so I read that a while ago and it always kind of stuck with me. And then once I got back to this, it kind of just, I was just thinking, yeah, like in each kind of segment of my life, um, I'm, I'm, I'm 32 now, but you know, what, what felt like, cause I think, yeah, kind of kindergarten, middle school, high school. And then after like, it just kind of naturally yeah. lives are just structured in that <laughs> way sort of because of the school system. But then I kind of, yeah, it was very easy to just think like, what was the thing in elementary school that was the most yeah, fucked up. Well, I was so surprised, honestly. Like, it's not that it didn't ring true once I saw it, but I don't know, like, had I been writing a story of this or had I been writing a story of my own maturation, I don't know that I would have started that young on the playground, even though it's, like, very clearly impactful. I don't know that my brain is programmed to think that it starts that young, you know? Well, I think I just experienced like that. Like I was called a chink and, and people were um, asking if I had a sideways vagina on the playground. Like that's just, that's what happened. So that's why we started there because that was the first time I realized I was like really different. Yeah. And speaking of starting young and watching them evolve, it really was a feat that your entire cast, uh, completed because they the single actor played the character at all of those ages I don't know that you could have found someone that young to to play a child like that I don't think that that's feasible in terms of the technical production but why did you want it emotionally for us to watch the same actors through the full show uh, one, I just felt like Midori could do it. Um, and cause we had a conversation, you know, do we cast younger actors? Do we have different ages? And I felt uncomfortable, uh, casting an actor in some of those earlier. So I didn't want to essentially do what the play is guarding against to an actor for this thing. Like that yes. seems like that. 
that wasn't kosher in my mind. Um, and so, yeah, and I just, I met Midori at this Asian American Arts Alliance. We were both like, why are we here? Um, but I remember <laughs> noticing her. And uh, we, yeah, I, I cold messaged her on Facebook. And I was like, because I saw her, she was in a Liberty Mutual commercial. I'd never seen her act otherwise. I'd met her at this Asian American Arts Alliance. Hilarious. And then I was on the treadmill at a gym. And I saw her and I was like, I know that girl. And I just had this feeling. I was like, I just think she can do it. And so I just like cold Facebook DM'd her and then, uh, you know, this is for the Columbia. Just And like, then we get a Drama Desk nominated performance. Yes. Yeah. 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 But, but back to your question is I felt, you know, and I don't know that I went into it thinking this, but reflecting back on the play now, I think the effect that it has is that like, you know, that child lives within us, all these mm -hmm. different selves, all these different iterations of our being still live within us. It's like, I'm, I'm quarantining with my mom right now. And I'm like 14 years old again, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so yes, like, just serious regression. Exactly, exactly. And so I think just like in a moment, I think also, you know, that's how trauma works in some ways too. manifests in some ways. It's like, you go back to that moment when Absolutely. it happened. Absolutely. Yeah. What was the most revelatory thing to see on stage and what was like the milestone or experience you wish you had been able to get in there, but you couldn't, if there was one? I mean, I think if we ever did it again, I would, I would make some edits to the woman because there was a lot, I was editing up until, cause, cause, um, we debuted the year, a year, no, we went into tech a year after Me Too had happened. Right. Dr. Ford was, was testifying during tech. So I was rewriting all the time because the conversation around this was changing. I wrote the first draft of this in 2016. 16. Weinstein didn't happen until 2017. So actually everyone was freaked out by the play. They were like, what is this? Right. And I, I had been auditioning the play um, at roundabout for, I think the process ended up being two or three years before they actually got it because Jill Raffson, who was the literary manager, who's now associate artistic director there. She was like, we have to do this play. We have to do this play. But there were a lot of people who were like, yeah, uh, I don't know. Um, and so, but then me too happened. And then they were like, Oh, we have to do this play. And so, uh, because the conversation around this, like suddenly something that no one was talking about, everyone was talking about, right. I had to just like kind of go, oh, oh, oh. So I think now I would, I would make some bigger, bolder, I think, statements earlier in the play via the woman just to get people talking maybe because right now we're seeing in the scene such personal experiences. And then she's also talking about personal experiences. I feel like there could be just a little bit more. Um, and then the most revelatory thing, I think seeing, because originally people were always wanting to get me to cut the woman. They really were. They were like, why is she here? She comes so late in the play. It feels like weird, like, and all this stuff. And originally I didn't have that final scene. They, they stayed, they didn't interact other than the shaving scene. Um, and then at the very end, I came in, this was like a couple weeks before we went into tech. I came in with a scene that I didn't know if I felt right because I was like, do I want to put 
the reality of a rape in this play because before it's been these very amorphous things. It's like, you're getting hints of things. You're seeing obvious misogyny. You're seeing obvious sexism and racism, but like, do I want to put the reality of a rape actually occurring? Because do I want to make this a rape play? And, Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and people were talking about that a lot. You know, people were talking about all the rape scenes on Game of Thrones, like this was a thing. And I was like, am I re-traumatizing here? But then ultimately, yeah, I brought this scene in and I said. Right. You know, and the, the scene where it's the morning after yes, and yes. Young is about to shower and the older woman knowing, you know, because it's herself says, don't, you know, don't do that. Don't shower. Yes. And, and this so- breakdown that is. I mean, it's so powerful and it's so real and it's so true. Yeah. I think it was so revelatory because, and also because I was, because I was like, I don't want to put this on stage. And then, and then even though it's not the actual act itself, it is the aftermath, but I was so worried that people would then see it as a quote unquote rape play. Mm -hmm. And I, and then I was like, fuck, fuck them. I was like, if they watch this entire play and if at the end, this thing makes them go, "Uh, uh, uh," like, I, I lost you already. Like, I'm never yeah. gonna lose you. Like, and so, and so, I just started interrogating my own, my own, like, not wanting to do it, my own bias about that. And I was like, what actually is that? And I was like, I've been true to myself at every point in time in this play and every scene. Why aren't I doing it now around this one thing? So I challenged mm-hmm. myself with that, and then to see. Jennifer Lim and Midori actually do this embrace. It was just so incredibly powerful. Yeah, because watching her hug her, it's the thing, like that's how you want to feel after something like that happens. I think what's so amazing about it is like the aftermath is actually the important part anyway. The aftermath is actually the 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 effect and the problem. But I also think what is so incredible is that you have this whole show of, you know, five-year-olds on the playground playing lava. And then there's like a little moment of discomfort. And then you have them playing girlfriends, which is so like joyful and funny. And again, like a moment where us as the audience are going like, oh, not only me. And, (laughs) and then you have, you know, that moment where the dad walks in and goes, what's happening in here? So all of those things are mixing the silliness, the discovery, the joy, and the fact that you were able to have such humor and such substance, and then kind of hit us with this at the end. I mean, I think just speaks to your prowess as a dramatist. And I want to get into all of these things, all of the maturation, all of the issues, the ideas of, um, you know, female sexual maturation in particular, because we have this idea of the coming of age play, quote unquote, but I've never seen anything specifically about sexual development. Like I am so about it. And we have an incredible panel of experts who I want to welcome in. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. 
No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So, I'm going to introduce them. We have um, Celine Parenyashimizu, who is the director of the School of Cinema and a full professor of cinema studies and a member of the graduate faculty in sexuality studies at San Francisco State University. She is an author and a filmmaker. Among her books are The Hypersexuality of Race, Performing Asian American Women on Screen and Scene, definitely applies here, as well as the feminist porn book and uh, films such as the award winning The Fact of Asian Women. Welcome, Celine. Hello. And then we have uh, Lisa Spidell. She is the assistant professor and general faculty in the gender and sexuality department at the University of Virginia. I found her through her book, The Edge of Sex, Navigating a Sexually Confusing Culture from the Margins, which came out this past December. She's also a sex educator and has taught women's self-defense for 26 years. Welcome, Lisa. Thanks for having me. So thrilled to have you here. We have Justine Fonte. She is a disruptor in the health education system. She's a director of health and wellness at a K through 12 school here in New York City. Um, she offers uh, and currently develops training and programming to help create health ed and sex positive programming. She leads workshops in consent for kids, body positivity, emotional wellness, sex and pleasure, and so much more. Welcome, Justine. Thanks, Ruthie. Good to be here. And then finally, we have Dr. Tracy Gilbert. Um, she has been an educator, writer, researcher, and consultant for the past 25 years, more than 25 years. And she specifically uh, works in Black communities, helping members of those communities claim and reclaim sexual wellness as a sex educator. Welcome, Tracy. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. So excited. All right. So now that we've got the roster lined up, I actually want to start with something a little personal. And um, and Ming, you can answer as well. I want you to jump in here too. What were you taught about your own body and sexuality at a young age, specifically by adults, parents or teachers that you did not learn from just like your friends on the playground? Who wants to start? Maybe Tracy? You look like you <laughs> like that question. The reality is that there was nothing that I was taught. Um, I think I, I grew up in a community where um, I think it was just assumed that if you don't talk about sex, you don't talk about bodies, people won't do sex and they won't do anything with their bodies. And so mm. um, it, it, silence was literally what I got for most of my upbringing. Um, and I think maybe I was 
seventh, eighth grade where I first, actually I learned about the menstrual cycle from the Cosby show um, because <gasps> Keisha Knight Pulliam's character, Rudy and I in <laughs> age. And so the, the episode where she got her menstrual cycle was when <laughs> I learned like, oh, okay, you know, this is, this is what, how you're supposed that's to That's going to happen it. to me. Right. This is something that's going to happen. And it's something that, you know, can be celebrated and all of that. Um, but yeah, no, conversations just were not... That's just not something that happened. And I think a lot of it, um, a lot of it can be silenced, but I think a lot of it was also about class, right? I work, uh, living in a working class family, you know, mm-hmm. people didn't have a lot of leisure time to sit and have conversations. It's like they were at work, they came home and they went to bed. So <laughs> no one's talking, no one has sure. time to talk. So I think some of that also kind of adds to it as well. And there was nothing in your school. Uh, no, very, no. Like I said, um, I think the first time I got a sex ed class was probably, actually it was in eighth grade. And okay. that was at the height of the HIV uh, scare and mm-hmm. people kind of having this hyper. So a lot of it was about, um, because I came from a community that was uh, perceived to be hypersexualized and at risk. And so a lot of what we got were just kind of anti-sex messages about using condoms and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had high uh, teen pregnancy rates. Uh, so a lot of it was like, don't do this thing. Don't have sex. But developmentally, there was nothing. There yeah. was nothing. So... Ming, I mean, I know that you wrote the story of your life on this stage, but I just see you nodding along so, you know, vehemently. Well, yeah, you know, it's, um, um, my mom's an immigrant and not to say that all, all, but I think in like immigrant Chinese families, like you just don't really talk about that. And, um, the only thing, you know, as in the play was, you know, I found my, my dad's pornos and then he ended up actually looking at them with me and then I showed it to my mom and my mom freaked out so at first it was basically uh this is good this is how women should look like you know one of the images that sticks out most in my mind was a penthouse where it's a woman sticking a stiletto into another woman and like which is a very violent and not comfortable sounding to me at least uh situation um But so then I had this very sexualized, very kind of violent thing that I saw. And then I was like enjoying it though. And then my mom sees it and then she flipped the fuck out. So then it was like a lot of shame then surrounding it. Mm -hmm. Um, But other than that, in terms of, because I went to public school in Ohio and I actually didn't even realize this until recently. I was like, oh, we were taught abstinence. I didn't like realize that. Like they separated the boys and girls they just showed us a bunch of scary pictures of STDs and that was it. Oh, <laughs> like close up pictures of STDs. Like that was it. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely, I remember those. I remember those. I, I mean, I feel the same, almost the same way. Like I don't remember having a conversation with my parents uh, or my mother. I remember learning in fifth grade, the reproductive system at the end of the other body systems. Like we learned nervous, circulatory, digestive, respiratory, reproductive. And um, it was- And did you have a mixed class for, did you I was have men say, in there? I remember we definitely, like we were nine and 10 and we were definitely taught parts together. And then we were shown videos separately. So yeah. I actually feel now pretty lucky that like I knew from the age of nine, like that I was going to grow breasts and, uh, and hair and have a period and 
that in seventh grade, then it became very, like you're saying, very STI focused. And it was like, and condoms are are 90% effective and birth control is 0% effective for STIs, even though they're, it's, you know, for pregnancy it works. But, but again, like this was a conversation about sex and between people, not about sexuality and any expression of it. And I'm wondering, you know, I did just interject my own history, but uh, to the other ladies in the room, I ask you the same question of what was your upbringing like? I grew up in I'm, I grew up in the Philippines, which yep. is a very Catholic country where abortion, divorce, and contraception is illegal. Mm. And there's also a colonized standard of beauty, you know, where you're growing up as a girl and you see that there are women who have fallen out of the status of good woman because they've either become, you know, pregnant at a young age or they've become designated by men as women who are outside of marriage, you know, to be used, to be used using Ming's words here, um, to be used by men in a way that really devalues them because they're no longer eligible, you know, for marriage or upward Mm -hmm. mobility. So even as a young girl, I could see this. I could see this Western standard of beauty that was imposed on the way I understood my own body. And I also saw, you know, the presence of the white U.S. military GI, you know, and I don't remember how young I was when I learned the term little brown fucking machine powered by rice, which referred Mm -hmm. to Filipina women in the sex industry. And I remember being in a car and seeing, you know, almost like documentary footage, but I was actually in real life, seeing women outside the bars and seeing men in groups, you know, around those women. And I knew what it was. I didn't have the language for it, but I knew what it was. I knew that they were there for the men. But of course, only mm-hmm. later in life did I realize that this was all arranged, you know, by the government, right. <laughs> between the, the relationship between the United States and the Philippines. You know, so I did not have the language for it, whether it was, you know, the state and international relations or the church. But I knew what it meant for my own body. And I knew what it meant for my own mobility, you know, to become a fallen person. Right. And in the terms of how people look at you rather than and how that informs how you look at yourself. It absolutely is intertwined to me. Because mm-hmm. there may be the systematic ways that women are regarded by these structures, but I also recognize it in the gaze of men. I recognize it in mm-hmm. the gaze of family members. I recognize it in the gaze of men on the street. I recognize what it meant to be vulnerable as a girl. Yes. Yeah. If I could, if I could yeah, jump Tracy, on go that, ahead. right? Because I think, um, one, I, I just wanted to say, Ming, I think your play was really awesome. I didn't, I haven't had a chance to see it, but I did get a chance to read it. And very rarely outside of Black produced media, do I see stories where I'm like, I can see myself. And so there were literal things in there that I was like, the same thing that Ruthie said. I was like, oh my God, yes, yes. I remember this story, like literal, even up to the very end, I was like, oh my God, that happened, right? And and, and what, Celine, what you're bringing up for me is is just reminiscent of this idea of um, kind of, again, this idea of being otherized and being fetishized and how that allow how that pushes you to see yourself. Um, for me, again, this big piece was about being at risk, right? And this was not something I ever saw in myself, but because of the body I was in, because of the skin color I was in, because of the environment I grew up in, I grew up 
accepting that I was at risk of something, not, Mm -hmm. not even knowing what it was, but knowing that I was at risk. And because of that, I needed to be groomed in a certain way with regard to sex, even though, um, I, I had no conceptualization. Like I, I had these experiences, but none of them really led to this perception of like, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sexually empowered. I'm this, you know, it was just that, oh, I have these curiosities of these things. And, but the narrative I got was, oh, but we need to protect you. We need to stop you because at some point, like I remember being in high school and a big thing people would say is that I was going to be turned out, that I was going to wild out. Cause this was the assumption that people were making about me, even though I had no, <laughs> I had no concept of it for myself. So I just, yeah. what you're saying, we're definitely going to so gonna get to that. We're going <laughs> to get to that too. Well, All it's just of it. so resonant. Yeah. And, and how it matches up too with, um, not just the male gaze, but also the white gaze, right? How that goes yes. together to inform, um, how you see yourself as a, as a young girl of color. Definitely. Yeah. What about for you, like, Justine? Well, what I appreciate about what uh, Dr. Gilbert brought up is that because we're in like this multiracial conversation, this is usual girls. All of us are having our own intersectional experiences, and yet this is a common denominator, the patriarchy, right? And so I think that that was so powerful, having the title, having that much intent, that this is usual. This is not radical. This is not an outlier, no matter what your race is or how you identify, if you are perceived as femme, this is going to happen to you. And um, uh, what um, Celine was saying about, you know, her upbringing in the Philippines, I have a parallel narrative as a Filipina American born in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And that for me, going to Catholic school, not necessarily born in the Catholic country of the Philippines, but Catholic school, K through eighth grade, and then going through, um, you know, school where the only time the history books covered someone that maybe resembled me and my identity was the rape of Nanking. So right away, people are seeing me as, oh, so you're like a comfort woman. That's that's who you are. And uh, when there was an unplanned pregnancy in my extended family, this was the first time that I heard my parents actually address sex and or sexuality to me. Uh, with, How old with were a, you? How old were you? Um, I, think I, was, I think I was maybe like 12 or so. Okay. And, um, and the comment talking about what had happened with my cousin was, uh, this, this is not going to happen to you. Okay. That was it. Like it was like, if it was out of context, you wouldn't even even know what they were referring to, but they were kind of talking about our cousin. And then they turned around in the car to just point to me. And I was like, is this the sex ed talk? This is the talk that all like my white friends have gotten. This is it. (laughs) Um, And then um, with, you know, what Celine was bringing up about, you know, the, the, you know, the GIs are in the country and how, you know, all that, how they are and how the women there are valued, especially by the military. That's me on Tinder. Like that is, I'm, I'm getting that same thing now through this online platform when I'm seeking out, you know, uh, intimacy and I'm getting in return this idea of like, oh, subservient hypersexualized, not able to give consent because she's already, you know, hypersexualized. And there's a reason why Asian women are statistically the most right swiped in the dating apps because mm-hmm. they see us as this hypersexualized, subservient male order bride who I can use as my comfort woman in 2020. Yeah. So there's just such a parallel. I, I didn't have to be born in the Philippines to experience the Philippine narrative because it carries and is, you know, epigenetic to like what is happening to me here in the United States. 
Yeah. I was getting messages all the time in terms of like a hypersexuality. I remember in seventh grade, me and all my white girlfriends all wore eyeliner for like the first time to like go to this choir concert. And I remember I was, I was 12 and uh, this mother came up to me and basically called me a slut in front of everyone, mm. but not any of the other girls that were mm-hmm. wearing the eyeliner or because my dad has blonde hair and blue eyes. When we used to go out to dinner together, if it would just be us, the assumption would always be that I was his male order mm. bride and then mm. I was just his young wife and I remember mm. waiters making comments I remember fellow like people around making comments and actually my father even playing into it because he mm. carried yeah. some sort of social capital essentially yeah. to have a mm-hmm. young Asian a, a, a brown fucking machine powered by rice sitting wow. across yellow fever. Mm-hmm. yellow yeah. fever was the phrase I heard so much in college it's like oh you're into that guy he must he must have yellow fever for you yeah, or just all the, con- you know, you just even anatomically right. the, the stereotypes that you're tight or like whatever. Yep. Mm-hmm. And the exoticism of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lisa, what about for you? What was your upbringing like? Uh, well, interestingly, I was born and brought up in Taiwan and lived there till I was 10 <laughs> um, and, mo- and moved to the U.S. when I was 10. Um, so uh, moving to the United States was uh, a, a shocker <laughs> uh, in sort of a reverse direction. But uh, fifth grade, I remember we got we had a nurse come in, and uh, I, I wasn't very used to this country yet. And uh, they they separated us uh, as boys and girls. And uh, she she told us that the vagina was like a self cleaning oven, and we didn't need <laughs> douche. And uh, we're, we're, we're all, you know, like 10 years old. But we were like, what's a self cleaning oven? <laughs> I think we get them at Bed Bath and Beyond. Yeah. <laughs> this makes no sense. So, like, so she was trying really hard. And then I have a very clear memory of my mom being like, you've got to watch out for men. You know, they, they act cool oh, as yeah. cucumbers, but they're hard as cucumbers. And I was like, okay. <laughs> There's cucumbers, you know, like, I don't understand what's happening here. You know, they were trying, there was some effort, uh, but I think there was a lot of confusion. So uh, that was the eighties. There is something about the age of 12. There is something about the age of 12. Right before 13, people are freaking the fuck out. Well, Jews definitely, Jews have something about the age of 12 and 13 officially. Um, But I think uh, what I'm hearing in the room is just a lot of, first of all, a lack of knowledge. But then when there was knowledge, a lot of shame and a lot of guilt, the turned out, the, um, you know, this idea of like, I'm my own father's mail order bride. I, um, I am an object for consumption by the military, um, by the white military. And I really want to talk about how we as adult women reclaim our sexuality and how we raise female-bodied kids to feel that from the start so that they don't have to unlearn, but they have it from the outset and maintain it. So like, where can we begin on reclaiming sexuality as a, as I don't even want to say a positive, like part of me wants to say a positive, but part of me also wants to say neutral. I'm not sure. If I could. Yeah. I think um, 
because what what you also what I also heard from what everybody was saying is that there was a lot of confusion. Yes, there was just a lot of messages that were like, "What the fuck does this even mean? What are you even talking about?" I always tell the story when I get in front of groups. I talk about the four condom story, my first HIV class, where I was taught by a teacher that you need to wear four condoms <gasps> in order to protect yourself from Ooh. HIV. Well, and- sidebar: <laughs> I did learn that only fifteen states of the fifty in the U.S. are required to teach medically accurate. Oh yeah. Yep. Oh yeah, they can come up with all types of stuff, right? But but and but again though, this was at the height of HIV. So if I was sexually active, it really would have behooved me to have the right information. Who is saying, no, 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 girl, you need to have four and showed us how what it was supposed to look like and all of these things. Wow. Um, and so for me, I think it is less about, I mean, yes, I think it should be positive more so, but also it should just be normalizing, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that sex is a part of you from the moment you are born to the moment you die, sexuality is a part of your world, whether or not you choose to engage with it. And so if you can start there, then having conversations about consent just comes with the territory. Having con- mm. conversations about, you know, gender diversity and anatomy diversity, all of that just comes with the territory, right? And so, mm-hmm. like, the one thing I was going to say, I- I'm kind of digressing a little bit, but um, when you were talking about the use of the rape scene oh. in the play, for me, it was such a, like, moment because I felt like it really brought full circle the ways that rape culture is cultivated throughout the life of a girl. Mm -hmm. And, and really, if we understand that sexuality is a part of all this, then that conversation that happened at five, it, it, it will, it wouldn't happen. It wouldn't be that a boy is, Oh, I'm going to tell on you if you don't kiss me. Right. Because it's normalized that no, this is not how that works. Right. Um, And so for me, that is where it begins really just by normal and helping people have the accurate information that allows them to make informed choices about what's happening to them in real time. Mm-hmm. Celine, you have a, a different perspective. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, versus- yeah, I really, when you said that you were, you were summarizing, Ruthie, that what we were saying, that there is a lack of knowledge, I actually think it's the opposite. I think that there is a very loud knowledge, unspoken maybe, but learned quite early about what is a good sexuality and what is a bad sexuality. You know, it's exactly what um, uh, Tracy just said. Rape culture is cultivated in the life of a girl throughout her life. Yep. Planting you know, the seeds. Um, yeah, that, that you don't own your body, that it belongs to others. You know, it belongs to your family and your family's reputation, for example. And you know not to, not to cross that. Mm-hmm. You know, or go, that go hug that uncle. Yeah, but your your behavior, you know, or what people do to you, you know, it has this place in a larger culture in which you belong, you know. So I love what um, Tracy's saying. And I went to a talk last week where this filmmaker, you know, who's in Hollywood was basically saying, you know, as an indigenous Latinx person, that it's really important to cultivate an original voice. And the way that you do that is to not be afraid of who you are and not be afraid of what you love. And I think that really carries mm-hmm. over in terms of thinking about sexuality, because if we live in a world, and we, and we do live in a world, you know, where women are disciplined to go against themselves in terms of what they like and who they are, mm-hmm. then it's really important to 
claim your sexuality that includes your trauma, you know, and how your pleasure may stem from that trauma. What I meant in terms of lack of knowledge is there is an anatomical lack of knowledge, definitely, but also um, a lack of self-discovery in sexuality, that we have societal perceptions of good sexuality and bad sexuality that you're right, Celine, are very loud that we maybe impose upon ourselves or or incorporate into ourselves, but that we're not finding it ourselves. Yes, absolutely. If we think about Ming's play, right? Mm -hmm. And she's in the playground, Kiyong's in the playground talking about the slanted vagina. I mean, that's a form of knowledge, right? That's has a long history, you know? So I went to the Kinsey Institute to study pornography, specifically of Asian women from the last 130 years. You know, it's Whoa. there, the images are there, oh you know? And it includes, it includes this attribution of the slanted vagina. I mean, I think the earliest one I saw was from the 30s, 40s. This beautiful theme of deve- sexual development, you know, is something that I'm thinking about a lot because the new book that I'm writing is called The Sex of Racial Childhoods. And it's about the self-sovereignty of children in defining their sexuality because adults so easily impose, you know, their idea of their idea and even practice of genital sex when that may not be the thing that children are curious about. You know, they're curious about the feeling of romance. We also learn from the culture that's around us and and the scripts that we're taking in Um and again, I kind of want to want to bring us back a little bit to like, how do we make them our own scripts? How do we find the ownership of our body, hence our own self-discovery of sexuality that leads to really pleasure and joy rather than, um, you know, shame and guilt? I was just thinking uh, about what Celine was talking about in and then uh, what I was hearing was like sort of the natural discovery of yourself and, and your body and how we interrupt it is what I was thinking, like based on, you know, different uh, religion and cultural background and, and all the things you all have been talking about, uh, you know, navigating dominant white culture and, and the history of racism. And um, I, was, I was thinking of a, a client that, we worked with when I worked at the social assault resource agency here in Charlottesville in Virginia. And, uh, the girl, um, kept saying, well, you know, uh, my uncle keeps touching my cookie and, and nobody was taking her seriously because that was the name she was taught for her vagina or her vulva. And, um, it was, it was just increasing her vulnerability with the lack of proper language or proper is not the right word, but, but accurate or, or just, um, you know, and there was like, uh, just no information. And I, you know, I teach a human sexualities class in the university at Virginia and, and this next generation, it's like, I keep expecting it to change, you know, as far as like, Oh wait, the cycle was broken. And now they have, uh, more agency over their bodies or autonomy. And it's, it, it just isn't, that cycle hasn't, isn't breaking. There's still yeah. so much shame. And there's the, uh, Ruthie and I had talked about this on the phone, but there's this book that's uh, called sex is a funny word that Corey Silverberg 
I don't know if any of you all have seen that, but I actually have my college students read it. It's for seven to 12 year olds. And they are like, why am I reading this kid's book? And then at the end of it, you know, they've written this whole paper about it. And they're like, oh, my gosh, I actually learned about parts of my body. You know, they're 20 year olds. Yeah. And they're sexually active. And just because you're sexually active does not mean you know shit. There's a both and to this. But there is this this sense of knowing that is in young people. And I think in the five year old scene, it's evidence from Keong's desire to kiss um the uh, the jerk i can't think of his name but the, the rory. rory was it rory yeah. him yeah rory um, but the but her i think there is a certain sense of curiosity and desire that isn't named but is at least known by uh, kiyoung and i think that is something that should be celebrated and that should be when we're talking about how to give um young people the space to be able to own their sexuality i think especially when we're talking about things like consent we also have to know we have to recognize that that's partnered with desire if we're going to give people the space to have consent Mm -hmm. we should also give them the space to know what it is they want and have the courage to say this is what i want and this is what i don't want um and also going i i absolutely echo what lisa is saying about just the knowledge of, and I, I wouldn't even say right or proper or term, but even just knowing what accurate. the dominant, yeah, the accurate, but I also want to acknowledge that even that is, is imperialistic, right? Knowing, knowing yeah. what the dominant terms are that will facilitate your survival in the society that we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and a prime example of that, that I think about is, um, I tell this stuff, one, two stories actually now at this point, I'm part of several Facebook groups of adult black folks who will say, you know, I was this age old, meaning they were in their thirties today with kids before they realized that the vagina and the vulva were two different things or that they realized the urethra and the vagina were two different things. Um, I worked with, and I worked with a ninth grader, a pregnant girl who was asking me how come you can, the baby doesn't get food on it, right? Because she didn't recognize, she didn't know that the uterus and the stomach were the same thing. So I think it there's empowerment in all of those things. The empowerment of being able to own the 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 unspoken things that are part of your desire, that are part of your sensuality and the sensu the sensuousness that you have both with yourself and others, and also the the power that comes from being able to know this is what happened, this is how it affected you know, and being able to name those things that will get you access to the support you need when things go wrong. Yeah, so, Justine, that's all I was going to offer for that. <laughs> yeah. Uh- I was thinking about, you know, how when we when we're bringing up how rape culture is a very general, something happens at, throughout all the generations. It starts at a young age. It doesn't even have to be things talking about like, you know, an uncle touching you or, you know, hugging uh, somebody at, you know, Thanksgiving. It can be even like less, um, less serious on like gender roles, gender roles and perpetuating that, that is a part of rape culture. And yes. when young girls are socialized right away to be caretakers, they don't know that they're supposed to also take care of themselves. And mm-hmm. so when you don't know how to take care of yourself and you prioritize all of this empathetic, you know, learning that you've gotten to help and cater and service others, you have another gender like males being ex- knowing that they're going to be serviced whenever they want. And yes. so that's where the objectification starts. It's like, well, no one ever socialized me to take care of anyone. Mm-hmm. So I should be able to get what I want when I want it. And yeah. this starts from the pink and blue, from like the baby showers to the toys that they play with. I mean, it's, it's, it's still the case. It's definitely better than when it was, but still the case. And, you know, as they progress in age, I mean, we're seeing that 
when we actually have an organ in our body of, you know, of, of females that is meant to provide us with just pleasure, we have that physically removed and cut off of our bodies in some villages and communities. And then we also are in that same world that sells Viagra and Cialis. Yep. So I mean, it's just so extreme. Like we have to take away female pleasure but yeah. we're going to maximize male pleasure. Yes. The priority is to give us that pleasure as males. I don't know that this was directly told to me. Again, I think it's like we're absorbing the culture and we're absorbing the tropes and we're absorbing the roles, but that if you are a if you are a girl or a woman who likes sex, like you are deviant. Right. Mm -hmm. That like there's something wrong with you if you like it, um, if you want it, if you have desire. You're crazy. Right. You're crazy. (laughs) It's supposed to hurt. Yeah. But that like like, for women, sex is dirty. But for men, sex is fun. Mm -hmm. And And who's victimized right now the most with that in the adults like world is Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion, right? Because they are owning and reveling in their sexuality and to the whole other camp, they're deviant as fuck. I saw this this tweet where someone was essentially like, I've never seen men come out so quickly to condemn a song about consent (laughs) compared to coming out against real... Sexual violence and rape. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's so funny. I was like, in my head, in the back of my head, I was like, I'm wondering how long it's going to take us to get to this song. (laughs) (laughs) I was was watching the the country, uh, the country remake of it (laughs) right before this. <laughs> but but I think I think um, I think what you said is so key. The the big thing that I've been hearing because we know at the same time, you know, uh, Megan has kind of been in the news as well for having um, experienced uh, violence from a fellow artist, right? And a lot of folks are saying people are more upset about the song than they are about the fact that she has experienced this violence, yes. right? And so there's this irony of that, and 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 it's so funny because you assume that especially because it comes from a genre that is usually pretty explicit about sex and, and, you know, doesn't have any qualms about it. And you assume, Oh, this is just like those other songs. And it's like, actually, this is one of the first songs I've heard that's on public in the public. That is literally women talking about their own bodies and saying, I like this. I'm enjoying this. And my body has power. I'm going to use my power to get what I want. And that to me is is very that's very much a shift yes. in what we've usually seen. Well, I also think that that's the self discovery piece that we're talking about. But listen, time has flown by. We have just begun to scratch the surface, so we're going to pause here, let all you listeners digest a little, and we'll be back next week for part two of this urgent challenging yet joyful conversation all of our experts will be back to continue talking about ming piper's usual girls why we theater is a product of the broadway podcast network it's edited and mixed by Derek gunther if you like the show subscribe at bpn.fm wwt or apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts And don't forget to leave a review and tell your friends. Our theme music is by Benjamin Velez. Why We Theater is recorded in part on the traditional lands of the Wappinger and Lenape peoples. I acknowledge this land was unjustly taken from them and pay my respect to elders both past and present. Special thanks to Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, Lee Silverman, Patrick Taylor, 
Tony Montaneri, Wesley Birdsall, Elena Mayer, and Suzanne Chipkin. For more resources for change, info about our guests, and more, visit us at whywetheater.com. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.